0: We'll be Attention crew, this is your Captain Caliban speaking. This is a supplemental episode of Enterprising Individuals, where we bring you news and tidbits from the world of Trek, also interviews with special guests, and a few little surprises along the way. This week we've got a little catch-up on some Star Trek and some Discovery news that's been waiting in the hopper for its chance to escape, plus a review of the new Netflix series Lost in Space. Yeah, ever heard of it? And a sneak peek at what's coming up next week on the show. If you're new to enterprising individuals, welcome aboard. Every other week, I talk with a new guest about a specific episode of a Star Trek series, and every other other week, I do this, which is bringing you a little extra from the world of Trek. I had a lot of fun last week talking with Dr. David A. Banks about Star Trek Voyager, but also about his area of expertise, which is sociology in the digital realm, which... I don't know if you consider yourself a news hound, but current events are proving that our digital lives are just as real as our IRL ones in a lot of concerning ways. And I hope to have him back on a show just like this sometime in the near future to talk about that very reality. But we've got our work cut out for us on this show, so let's get underway. (laughs) Well, Star Trek Discovery Season 2 is fast becoming a reality. Filming on the second season of The New Trek Show began this last Monday, the 16th, at Pinewood Studios in Toronto, and two interesting additions to the show's cast were recently announced. Actor Anson Mount, formerly of Hell on Wheels and Marvel's Inhumans, has been cast as Captain Christopher Pike of the USS Enterprise. As I'm sure you remember, the Enterprise made an appearance in the final minutes of the season one finale of Discovery, and it looks like we'll be getting more of the Enterprise in season two. In fact, Jonathan Big Mouth Frakes will be directing episodes two and ten of Discovery, and he let slip that we'll even see a young Spock in flashback scenes in next season. Okay, okay, okay. Um, optimism with a hypospray full of caution, I suppose, uh, but at least they're really going for it. Um, I I do like the fact that they are steering into these uh, elements. They're not just, you know, not just cheesy references. Let's actually do this if we're going to do this. And they did it by, uh, you know, pulling the cord and having the Enterprise show up. So I think that's cool. There's no word on who will play the young Spock. But as long as it isn't one of the guys from Big Bang, I'm good. Mark Harmon, Mike Tyson, uh, two badgers in a trench coat, whatever. But if I see Sheldon on one of these things, we're going to have a problem. Uh, I don't know much about Mount, to be honest. Um, he's an active Twitter user, and no, no, before you even ask, his feed isn't quite as fortifying as the departed Jason Isaacs is, but he seems like a a cool guy. Um, For example, he's got his own podcast uh, with editor and cinematographer Brandon Edgens called The Well, uh, which is about um, people following their creative inspirations, which I think is cool Um, as far as his looks. uh, He's got that sort of chiseled uh, white guy look. (laughs) People think he looks like uh, Jeffrey Hunter. Um, I'm not on board totally with that. I mean, it doesn't really matter. Uh, although if you look at Jeffrey Hunter in that Jesus movie he did a couple of years before uh, he was on the pilot of Star Trek, The Cage, and a uh, picture of Mount with a beard from Hell on Wheels, that, that right there, that's the Drake saying, yeah, that's it. So uh, check that out. And speaking of interesting people, the other recently announced addition to Discovery's cast is stand up comedian Tig Notaro. She'll be playing Chief Engineer Denise Reno of the USS Hiawatha. Notaro was recently the star of the Amazon show One Mississippi, which was based on her life and experiences as a comedian. And she's had a lot of experiences. Um, several years ago, she developed um, cancer. She had a uh, infection called C. diff, which was really rough on her. Uh, this was all uh, right after her mother died in an accident unexpectedly and her girlfriend left her uh, while all this was going on, and she was in treatment, and it all sounds terrible, but she took those lemons and made them into joke aid uh, and a hilarious special called Tignotaro Live as well that you should check out, certainly. Now, how does that get her to the 23rd century? I don't have any clue, but I'm excited to see what she does with the character and to see some more humor and weirdness get added to Discovery. And speaking of... No, no. I don't have a segue for this one. Uh, Alex Kurtzman is directing the season two premiere of Discovery. Um, Look, I don't like Alex Kurtzman's work. I don't think I've ever made any secret of that. There's this thing in Hollywood where you, you have the idea of like a super producer. It's like a guy, uh, and it's not just a guy. Um, There's um, Kathleen Kennedy or Gail Ann Hurd or um, Lauren Shuler Donner. Uh, It's this person who, they they have their finger on all the pies, um, and they're responsible for bringing you a lot of amazing stuff. Uh, In the case of Gail Ann Hurd, it's The Terminator, Aliens, The Abyss. For Kathleen Kennedy, it's Jurassic Park, uh, of course, Star Wars. Uh, And for Lauren Shuler Donner, it's a lot of things, uh, and all of Fox's superhero films, good and bad, uh, for more or less. So Alex Kurtzman is also, uh, by all these regards, a super producer. But what amazing films and franchises has he brought us? There's Transformers, the amazing Spider-Man films, the Kelvin Universe Trek films, and The Mummy. The Mummy. My assertion and I don't think that this is a stretch, is that he's not really good at this. You know, I mean, he's certainly not a screenwriter of any real talent, but he's associated with some extremely valuable properties. And I think that way you get approval by association. But as far as I can tell, the best that he can bring to a project is his lack of direct engagement. And the worst is... Well, Star Trek Into Darkness. When movies make money, like like blockbuster money, there's no impetus from up on high to to rock the boat much in terms of how the franchise gets run. So you definitely don't have to be very good if you manage a popular property with talented writers, directors, actors, etc. Simpson and Bruckheimer made millions for years just blowing up pinatas full of cocaine. And who cares if the movies are shallow because we're making a mint and Nicolas Cage's stardom is immortal. Kurtzman, however, has had the cinematic rug pulled out from under him several times in the past few years uh, with the poor response to The Amazing Spider-Man, to the poor response to Star Trek Into Darkness, to his professional split with Robert Orchie, and that's a whole other segment, to the poor reception of his first blockbuster directing credit and his second directing credit period, The Mummy. The dismal showing of The Mummy at the box office as seen as one of the factors, maybe the main one, that stopped uh, dead Universal's plan for its Dark Universe line of monster movies. So it looks like reality is catching up with Kurtzman. You don't have to be good at this, but you have to be better than he's being. And it should be good news that the shine is off his star for lovers of good movie content, but I knew that it would be bad news for Star Trek Discovery fans because getting shown the door in movies would mean that he had a lot more time to spend in his role on Star Trek Discovery as executive producer and co-creator. Kurtzman co-wrote the series pilot, The Vulcan Hello, which I think we'd all agree is not the best the show's been. And sure enough, now he's taking the director's chair for the second season premiere. What does this all mean, you ask? Should I cancel my CBS All Access subscription? Do I now have a valid excuse for never subscribing to Access in the first place? I don't know. I mean, one person can't ruin something, right? Maybe he and Akiva Goldsman will cancel each other out. Somebody on this show, most likely Gretchen Berg, Aaron Harberts, Kristen Beyer, a bunch of other names I'm forgetting. Somebody is creating amazing new characters and cool outfits and tense situations and moral quandaries, and that's the stuff I'm going to enjoy and focus on going forward, despite the empty explosions and pandering reference porn that sometimes gets in the way. No release date is yet available for Season 2 of Discovery, but it shouldn't be too long and I can't wait. Just one request. No mummies, please. Okay, thanks. Well, Star Trek isn't the only 60s space series that's getting a facelift in the 21st century. Super producer, see, super producer Erwin Allen has many credits to his name, from his sci-fi television shows like Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea and Land of the Lost to his star-studded disaster flicks like The Towering Inferno and The Poseidon Adventure. But stars of a different kind are more important to his arguably most influential property, specifically being lost among those stars. Lost in Space ran on CBS for only three years, from 1965 to 1968, but it's remained staunchly within the pop culture and sci-fi firmament ever since, inspiring novels, comics, a terrible 1998 film, written by Akiva Goldsman, he added wryly, and now a 10-episode series, newly available on Netflix. The robot is shinier, the space is lostier, but does the new show live up to the idea of the original, or does it get lost up its own wormhole, there's no need for a tease. I don't know why I'm doing this. I'm going right into the review. <laughs> Here it is. Uh, Lost in Space on Netflix. I came into this with ver- very high hopes, or at least fairly high hopes. And just to let you know, um, this won't be a spoiler review. I'll just be talking about the first couple of episodes, so don't worry about spoilers. Um, I don't like a lot of viewers um, my age, which is old but not that old. Um, I have a affection for Lost in Space. I always like when you can catch it on MeTV. Uh, or in syndication, or what have you, it's become harder to come by uh, in these days, although you can get it on YouTube. I think there's a couple episodes on YouTube. And if you go back and watch them, um, they're not great. I mean, They're not bad, uh, but they're, not, they're definitely not up to our you know, golden age of TV standards. But they're really not even up to um, Star Trek's standards. One of the things I love about the original series is that, yeah, okay, changing social mores and better uh, cardboard technology aside, uh, they really hold up. Like, they are just good TV. Um, there's a lot of TV from that time that's the same. Uh, you know, Mission Impossible, uh, Bonanza, insert your favorite show here. It's definitely in the old form of TV, which is the reset, uh, the, the the main characters we know just running into a guest star every week. Uh, but it's one of the best examples of that. And Lost in Space was never like that. They were just kind of doing their own thing. And, you know, it's it's compelling. Um, it comes from a great idea, which is basically the Swiss family Robinson. It's the Robinson family in space. And it just works. And there's something about it that hooks into your mind, that pulls you in. And my uh, probably, <laughs> sadly, um, biggest point of connection uh, with it was the 1998 film. Because as somebody without an internet to speak of at that time, um, I, you know, I wanted some more Lost in Space. I thought, oh, great. And this is a point where I can unironically like Matt LeBlanc So and Gary Oldman, so let's do this. And, of course, movie's not good. It's too bad. Um, but, you know, there's just something about it still. Like, if the movie is on, I will watch it as well. And this is a completely different take. Now, it's not different in that uh, they're, they're a basketball team or something like that, but uh, it's taking it more seriously. And I think that's both its strength and its weakness, and I'll get into what that means. Like a lot of streaming shows, it's just a long movie that's cut up into hours, and this is, of course, 10 hours. And that's fine for some people. I appreciate the Trek-esque, uh, you know, you get an hour, um, there's an arc that begins and ends, and we'd all like more continuity in our Trek, or at least we're getting it now with Discovery, um, but I'd, I'd like a little more structure. We don't get that here, but it's fine. I didn't miss it all that much. Um, The family is what you'd expect. Uh, We've got John and Maureen, and of course Judy, Penny, and Will. Um, There's no real twists and turns. I mean, if you're familiar with the original series, they're just a family. I mean, there's not a lot to know about them. They're all smart, capable, and plucky like a good uh, 60s sci-fi hero would be. Um, And they're led by Professor Robinson. Uh, There's a great dynamic in this in that Mr. Robinson is a... um, A soldier. He's a. um, I don't think they really in the early uh, episodes. They don't really get into what he does, but he is uh, distant from the family because he's on deployment, and that creates a rift between between him and Maureen. Maureen is a. um, Well, she's kind of a rocket scientist, but she's you know she's in STEM, and so they're about to get a divorce before the um, show starts. So they get pulled into this program. I should give you the setting, too. Um, In the original series, um, overpopulation has forced us to look for uh, new worlds, new homes on other stars. And in this case, it's an environmental uh, sort of apocalypse. And so that's, you know, in keeping with how we see, um, you know, dystopia sort of creeping in around the edges of our future. And so they are all chosen to go on this thing and um, with a bunch of other families. And it creates this great thing because it isn't just June Lockhart, you know, just saying, yeah, honey, or every once in a while uh, getting mad uh, at John because he's not, um, you know, treating her like an adult or something like that. What you'd expect from something that's a little backwards in terms of sexual politics. There's a real family dynamic uh, present here. And I think I'd apply that to the entire show. Uh, I think it's a focus on family. I think it's family entertainment. It's PG uh, TV PG. But I wouldn't say that it talks down in the way that you think that, I don't know, a Nickelodeon special or a free form, Nothing against those, um, those networks or those brands, but you would think of it as a show talking down to a family. Like, the family is at the center of this. It put me in the mind of the Fantastic Four, really. How the Fantastic Four should be doing what superheroes do, saving the world, uh, fighting cosmic bad guys. But how does their family dynamic inform how they do that? And that's at play uh, all throughout this show in a way that really honestly surprised me. Um, when I said that I came into this with uh, lowered or at least realistic expectations, um, what I meant by that was, and we've been talking about creators that we don't have a lot of faith in, or at least I have on this show, um, it, this show comes from two guys who I have absolutely no faith in. Uh, at all. Matt Sazama and Burke Sharpless. Uh, they're a writing team who's written quite a few movies recently, and it's things like Dracula Untold, uh, The Last Witch Hunter, Gods of Egypt, the Power Rangers reboot. Uh, I mean, you know, I'm not throwing stones, but it's certainly not um, A-level fair, and not even like well-rated uh, or financially successful fair. So, you know, before you say that I'm prejudiced against quote-unquote dodgy creators. I think if you give somebody a chance to do something and it's somewhere they fit and they get to do what they want, uh, they can do something great. So, Alex, I'm still pulling for you. But anyway, back to Lost in Space. They've really done a good job um, creating this family unit. Um, Maureen and John fight over who has access to the kids, Not because they're actively fighting in like a, you know, custody battle type way, but because John doesn't know them well. He's spent many of their formative years um, on deployment, and so they've kind of become her kids, you know what I mean? And it's, that's, when you're stranded on a planet and you're worried about aliens or whatever coming after you, that suddenly takes on a whole new dimension, that conflict. Um, Penny is my favorite character (laughs) so far. Uh, She is like a cast as a snarky uh, sort of genius, child genius. But she's the show is uh, brave enough and smart enough for us to see all the facets of the characters. So she's kind of lazy, and she's always trying to get out of uh, doing what she has to do. Um, Some of the problems are caused by her. Uh, That's true of all the characters, which I think is great. I think it's okay to see our heroes mess up and fail and kind of cause their own problems. Um, this isn't Star Trek where we're all, we all made it through the Academy. Uh, each one of, uh, those red shirts that died on that planet at, with the goo monster were Starfleet's finest. Um, this is a family. Now it raises questions. Why are we letting kids go off and be astronauts and they could burn up on reentry? But it's a serious situation. We got to find a home. Earth is dying. Um, I have one complaint and that's about, um, the character of Judy, um, the actress is great, and they've put her in a situation where she's getting to show a lot of her range, um, and she has a lot for a young actress. But she's sidelined early on with a sort of, I don't, want, I don't mean to limit it or, um, or to diminish it, but it's kind of like a PTSD plot um, where she's experiencing uh, stress over this situation that she found herself in. And again, it fits right in with like seeing our heroes be vulnerable. Like That's fine and cool. Um, but it's kind of trite. It wraps up quickly. Um, I felt like I like the fact that they wanted to tackle something like that, like in a real life situation that's not a black and white 60 sci-fi thing. This is what like an astronaut might find themselves facing, but it's just kind of wrapped up really fast and we just lose, you know, Judy doing cool stuff for a couple episodes, so hopefully they won't do too much more of that going on. Here's what I want to see more of going on. Parker Posey as Dr. Smith. When I heard that Parker Posey was involved, at first I was like, huh? And then I heard that she was going to be Dr. Smith, and I was like, huh, I guess we're going back to the Drake meme. Um, she's great in this, and Dr. Smith is, is a great character, uh, one of my favorite characters from the original show. And how you put it in a 21st century show, I mean, you know, they are up against the wall to start off with, uh, In the original show, it's never really dug into, but he is an enemy agent, like you can assume that he is a Soviet agent or whatever they've got in 1997, in black and white 1997. And that's kind of dropped because he has to be part of the crew for the three years going forward. Um, They've come up with their own thing in this, and from the beginning of the show, you don't know the whole thing, and you learn more going forward. But Parker Posey's um, sort of distracted, sort of moody line readings, uh, and I don't mean those uh, as uh, criticisms, are perfect for this role, because you really understand, instead of just Dr. Smith going, "Mm, I don't want to do that, oh no, Get, get thee behind me, Satan, uh, you can tell what you understand her. You understand why she's scared. You understand why she's out for herself. And there's this great scene uh, in one of the early episodes where something is wrong on the ship. You know, there's a monster running loose and she gets locked in a cupboard with uh, will by the robot. Uh, who we'll talk about in a second. And she is, <laughs> she's told the crew that she's a, ch- a, a family psychologist. And so she's kind of doing a psychology thing on him and she's, she's kind of like getting like a therapy from him. (laughs) Like there's this point where he's frustrated and he's scared and he's really mad because the robot won't let him out to help his family. And she starts to go into this thing about how it's okay to be afraid. And she's kind of trying to sell him on selfishness. And there's this level to the dialogue where they're, they've both got something going on uh, that they're not saying, I guess, Will's a little more uh, on the face of it, which I thought was like, These guys wrote Dracula Untold. Like, this is really good. Like, I'm really impressed by this. Um, So that's all there. Bases covered. Uh, The effects are great. Um, The world that they're on is clearly just northern Canada. Uh, But maybe it'll get a little weirder as we go. But the show is beautiful. It looks good. I can't say much about Don West because he is not really in the. He is in the show, but not a lot in the early episodes. So maybe we'll see more of that. So I guess from a guy with a Star Trek show, um, I'm saying you should check out Lost in Space on Netflix because I've been really impressed. And if you check it out and you're impressed by it, or if you're not impressed by it, you can let me know on social media at Enterprising Individuals on Facebook or Twitter. Or at eistpod at gmail.com before I finish, I do want to talk about the robot who of course was a big part of the original show and is in this show as well and if this is the this is the part where we're got to put a little little mustard on this right like we're not just going to do a big you know Robbie the robot type thing uh, We got to go somewhere with this and so of course, what do we do? do we make it CGI? do we make it all flowy and, and liquid and weird um, they've done something cool with it like it's an, it's a an, cool design, it's got future uh, aspects to it, it's got retro aspects to it as well, and I was floored to find out that it's mostly practical. There are parts, you know, where it's CGI, of course, but they've done a real, you know, real-time practical suit. There's a guy in the suit in such a way that it's amazing to look at. Like, I know you can do a lot lot of things with 3D printing now, but it blows me away. Like, it's just, it's really well-designed Um, the robot has a mysterious past because of course he does because this is 21st century storytelling and so the show gets into that as we go but I think it's another good reason to um, check out the show people are talking about a spin-off the robot needs his own spin-off really? okay, maybe they'll go with that Netflix is making 8,000 new more shows so maybe they'll do that but uh, before they do I say check out this one no danger Will Robinson the show is good (coughs) Well, if all this Star Trek Discovery talk has got you hungry and you need some replicator rations to tide you over until season two starts, why not check out some additional reading? Books are good food, too. There are two Discovery novels available currently, Desperate Hours by David Mack and Drastic Measures by Dayton Ward, both former guests on this show, and Fear Itself, the third Discovery novel by James Swallow, will be available on June the 5th. And hopefully I'll be able to get James on the show sometime soon to talk about the new book. I'll keep you posted on that. If you want to buy books 1 and 2 or pre-order 3, click through the Amazon banner on EnterprisingIndividuals.com and it'll take you right to Amazon where you can order those books or anything else you've got a hankering for. And when you do, we here at Enterprising Individuals get a little something-something to keep the warp core lit at no extra cost to you. It's a great way to support the show and to get the Trek swag you're looking for. You can even bookmark that link and support enterprising individuals anytime you shop with Amazon. So click on through. We'd appreciate it. And maybe you're saying, wow, Cap, thanks for the hot tip, but I've got those books already. What kind of fan do you take me for? And to that I say, why so confrontational? But I also say you can still support the show by going to our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash EISTpod. It's there that you can sign up to be a crew member for the show for a small monthly donation and you can get access to our exclusive subscriber content like our live shows including our upcoming live show with Melinda Snodgrass at Convergence 2018 this July and my DS9 rewatch recaps plus show merchandise and much more. Just head to patreon.com forward slash and for as little as $1 a month you can become a member of the crew. As always, anything you can contribute to the show will be appreciated and will help keep us flying. Thanks. Our top comment this week on social media comes as a response to last week's show with David Banks. Facebook user Connie Kakechi Kare heard the episode and commented, quote, I enjoyed that very much. What an awesome podcast, end quote. Well, thank you, Connie. I'm 99% sure that Connie isn't a Russian bot, but on Facebook these days, can you ever really be sure? We need a foolproof Turing test that pops up every time somebody wants to post a comment on social media, and it's got to go way beyond wavy letters and numbers. It's got to be like, thanks for submitting your comment. What did you think about the finale of Breaking Bad? Or um, Jimmy Fallon or Jimmy Kimmel? And explain why this is a trick question. Real heuristic stuff. Uh, Anyway, thanks for listening, Connie. My favorite shows are when, yeah, I mean, we're talking about Star Trek, but also when the discourse evolves, you know, like a... A Russian bot that can beat a breaking bad Turing test when it evolves into something more. And David was really bringing it, so thanks to him too. Connie, for winning top comment, you win a tortoise. Its belly baking in the hot sun, beating its legs, trying to turn itself over, but it can't. Not without your help. But you're not helping. I mean, you're not helping. Remember, listeners, you can tweet to us or message the show and maybe have your comment read on the air. Just go to facebook.com forward slash EIST pod or find us at EIST pod on Twitter or through our social media links on enterprisingindividuals.com. You can also reach the show at EIST pod at gmail.com with feedback and suggestions or to just say hello. We're waiting to receive your transmission. And that's it for this supplemental episode of Enterprising Individuals. If you're an Apple Podcast listener and you haven't yet, why not look us up on Apple Podcasts and make sure that you're subscribed to the show. Also, give us a little review huh? if the spirit moves you, and give us a rating at the very least. We'd appreciate it. If you're not an Apple Podcasts user, you can still subscribe to the show on Google Play or Stitcher or wherever you get our show from. And if you leave positive comments and ratings and reviews on those platforms as well, we would be eternally grateful. Next week, on Enterprising Individuals. Citizen Kane, The Last Supper, The Fifth Symphony, all works of art achieved at, arguably, the peak of the artist's progress as an artist, each of them changing, indelibly, the media in which they arose. When Deep Space Nine premiered in 1993, no one thought that a spin-off of Star Trek The Next Generation would in many ways surpass the show that it followed, but in 1993, No one had yet seen the talent and care that DS9's architects would employ to bring the series to its masterstroke of a conclusion. Keith DeCandido joins me next week to talk about one of the final hours of DS9, a rumination on atrocity and hope. It's tacking into the wind next time on Enterprising Individuals. And until then, I'm your Captain Caliban signing off and saying live long and prosper.